Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. Welcome once again, everybody. For those of you I have not met, uh, my name is Melissa Pillman. I am an elder and pastor in the Wrigleyville location, and you are at the All Family Gathering. And that's really fun at time of year for us. We have, I just feel so much thanks, you guys, coming together this morning. Thank you to all of you who participated in parts of this service. Thank you, Uptown, for hosting us so graciously and setting up this space. Thank you to our amazing worship team for leading us in worship. And you guys, I don't want some of the little details to be lost on you. I I can't say the whole list, but thank you, Lauren from Wrigleyville, for this beautiful spread. Thank you, Rachel and Brandon, for baking bread. You may not see this. It has little leaf decor on the front, you guys. They baked the bread, and they made the meat for our lunch today. Thank you, thank you. So much love went into this morning, and so... Um, The heart behind these worship services is that we get to be reminded, each one of us, that we are a part of something bigger. We're connected in our local communities, but we're also part of a broader church movement. And that's a tangible reminder of how we as Missio de Chicago are part of the capital C church movement of Jesus Christ not only in the city, but around our world. This is a moment as an all-family gathering that allows us to lift up our heads and remember that we're part of something bigger, and that is the fullness of the movement of God in our world today. I personally, along with my husband, have actually been a part of this church community worshiping at 1242 West Addison for almost 22 years now, before we were even Missio Day. I see a couple of alums who came back for a visit, actually. So we've been here for a really long time, and I've been on staff for a little over 10 years now. And part of my original role on staff was planning this event doing the details and getting the volunteer teams together. The first one of these we held in 2014, and I have notes from every year until this year when I just wrote a sermon and showed up. So other than that, um, it was a big part of me planning these. And so I've been thinking about all of that a lot this morning, and I actually started to feel a little sentimental thinking about all of those gatherings in all the different locations, Logan Boulevard, up the street, was it McCutcheon's Park at Blaine, all the different locations where we've had these, and I started to think also of all the faces. And I found myself getting sentimental. And I'm not usually sentimental, let me clarify. Like, I don't keep ticket stubs as mementos. My scrapbook is like the last one I did, I think that our youngest, who's now 16, was maybe three. Like, I'm way behind on scrapbooking. I'm I'm not a keeper of things, but I am incredibly sappy. And so when Facebook, like, pushes a memory from eight years ago, I'm wrecked for half a day when I wasn't (laughs) expecting to see it. I am a sap, but I'm not really sentimental. And I think that one of the reasons I avoid sentimentality is because I don't like that tension I feel when Facebook shows me that old memory. I don't like some of that tension. I have absolutely loved being a part of this community, this body of believers, for all of these years. I absolutely have loved it. On the one hand, when I thought about all the all-family gatherings, I truly miss so many people who have moved from the city and are no longer here, and I found myself seeing all of their faces. But on the other hand, and at the same time, I am deeply dependent and uh, 
deeply in love with the people that I continue to meet here every time I turn around. Like, these are my people. You are my people. And I love, love being a part of it. It's a both and when we feel those kind of tensions. And when I was started to think, well, what would I share if this is my first time actually preaching instead of just, um, you know, setting up the details of an all-family gathering? What would I even want to share after all these years? And I started to just ponder and sit in the feeling of how much of our walk as Christians involves living in tensions. And I kind of made myself sit in that tension that I was feeling and not just rush to avoid it. Think about it this way. On a Sunday, any given Sunday, when you go to your local congregations together, we feel the life of living in tension alongside one another. One minute we're celebrating a friend's new job. It's such a win, they worked so hard, we're so excited. And the next minute we're grieving with somebody who just has lost their pregnancy. And there's, there's no words for the pain of that moment. We're holding hope with somebody, with that upcoming doctor's appointment that's finally coming and we've been waiting for. We're angry with our brother or sister who's experienced injustice in the workplace because of the color of their skin. We hold all of these. I could go on and on, and so could any of you on any given Sunday or any time that we gather together to do this real gritty life together. We feel those tensions. But why do I think that those tensions in some ways are unique or specific to Christ followers? Isn't all of humanity living in the tensions of the emotional roller coaster of life? Yeah. It's true, but I believe there's a fundamental difference in how we as Christ followers experience these tensions when we are following in the way of Jesus. And so in order to make my point, we are going to look at the story where uh, Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave, the part that Aaron just read us. If you are one who likes to read along in the Bible and see the actual words of Scripture, it's in John chapter 11, verses 1 to 44. What you're going to get from me today is what we in Wrigleyville call a Pillman paraphrase. So we're not exactly, we're not going off script, we're off script, but we're going to get the point across. So first what I want to do is a little bit set the scene of where we are and the people who are involved in this moment. So at this point in the earthly ministry of Jesus, he has gained a lot of recognition. And in the region that the Bible is talking about here, he's very well known, both with fans and non-fans, like definitely some haters out there. But he has become a known figure in this area. And now the, the family that we're talking about, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, this is a sibling group, and they show up multiple times in different encounters throughout the gospel narratives. So they are friends of Jesus, and they have a lot of intersections, like the kind of friends who actually see each other regularly. And so this sibling group lives together, the three of them, in Bethany. Bethany is a town about two miles outside of Jerusalem. I mean, you guys think about it. If you have a really good, robust walk on the lakefront, you can walk two miles. It's not that far, right? And so it's just outside of Jerusalem. Jesus has just been in Jerusalem with some of those hater people and actually left because people were trying to stone him. He went across to the east of the Jordan and gets kind of get out of town for a minute with his disciples. And it's when he's there that he gets word that his friend Lazarus is sick. Now, when we go through this story today, we're going to do something that isn't, um, we don't always do with scripture, but it's fun sometimes. We're going to do an imaginative engagement in the story. We imagine ourselves in the scene, which is why I'm not directly reading it. I want to paraphrase to sort of bring us into the story. What that means is we want to stop and smell the smells. We want to hear the sounds. 
We want to feel the emotions that come as the events unfold. And I picked this story because I think when we observe the emotions along the way, this little moment encapsulates an amazing breadth of human experiences in a very short time frame. This, to me, is a perfect example of living in the tensions. Okay. So Pillman paraphrase. So Mary and Martha, they send word to Jesus. But of course, this is by way of messenger, right? It's not like they text, it's time to come, and then they get a message back saying, I'll be right there. Or I can't come for two days. Like, they have no idea. They've sent this message out to their beloved friend Jesus, and they probably are feeling things like hope, like hope that he'll get there quickly or even get the message in time. They're probably feeling scared because their brother is so sick that they were bold enough to interrupt Jesus in his important ministry to say, we need you. And that doesn't happen, like they have, they, it's not like they do that all the time. So they must be kind of scared, anxious, maybe a bit impatient. Impatient is one of my go-to emotions. So like I think if I had sent for someone, I would be really impatient, wondering if they were coming, impatient in the waiting. But Jesus chooses not to leave right away. Now, the text does specifically say Jesus loved Mary and Martha. That one's written in the text. It's the one emotion we do know. The rest of these, I'm guessing, because I'm trying to get myself into their experience. But he loved them, but he stayed put, telling the disciples, this won't end in death. It is for God's glory. But Mary and Martha, they don't know that yet. They didn't hear that message. In their eyes, their friend Jesus is too late and their brother dies. Anyone who has experienced loss knows and doesn't need me to give the breadth of emotion that come alongside grief, sadness, anger, disbelief, all of it. So that's where they are. They're in such a heavy place of emotion with the newness of this loss. And I might add potentially, I think maybe fear. As a woman in that culture, you depended on the covering of a male in your family for certain rights. Women without some male covering, be it a husband, a father, or an older brother, were more vulnerable. And so I imagine they probably felt a little bit of fear about what this was going to mean for them. And it's at this point in the story that Jesus tells the disciples, okay, let's go but now the disciples are the ones who have fear. You know, they basically were just trying to stone you in Jerusalem, right? You remember we just left there. You, you want to go back? You want us to go back into that mess? I imagine they were now fearful. And Jesus is like, no, we're going. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him. And then I think probably the disciples felt relief. Oh, good. If he's asleep, he will wake up. Actually, we might not even need to go. Let's just find out from a distance. Like, we don't want to go back. And Jesus responds to them basically saying, you guys, he's dead. I'm talking in metaphor. We're going back. Come on. Okay. It's time to go. And a disciple named Thomas says, all right. Let us go too that we may die with him. I see in this kind of a tossing in the hands like, all right. If that's what he's going to do, we got to go too. We're resigned to go. And so off they go. And back in Bethany at this point, a group has come to comfort Mary and Martha. Because that's, that's what we do in grief, right? We bring food. We bring hugs. We bring words that aren't going to make a difference, but we just have to be there. Presence matters. And so a group has come, and somebody spots Jesus coming. Martha hears and goes out to approach him. And I'm actually going to read this part for real, starting in verse 21. Lord, Martha says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. This was a, a Jewish belief held by many, not all sects of Judaism, but that, that, that the someday bodily resurrections, she's declaring that. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. So now at this point, after this exchange, Mary has also been called out from the home, and she goes to where Jesus is standing in that same spot. She falls to his feet and says the exact same thing as Martha, the first part. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So what do we hear in that shared statement from both of the sisters? Clearly, they've been talking about it. Remember, it's been a couple of days now that Lazarus has already been dead. The sisters have been talking. They've probably come to the shared conclusion, if he had been here, our brother would not have died. So they have feeling the same thing. But he is dead. Why weren't you here? Why didn't you come in time? It reminds me when I read that statement, that question, of something that we see all over the place in the Psalms. I give a few examples here. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Why, Lord, do you stand far off? You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? What do all these statements, along with what Mary and Martha are saying, what do all of them have in common? It's the very real tension that we experience of feeling frustration, disappointment, even anger towards the Lord, but at the same time, declaring our faith in the Lord. Both of these coexisting at once. Why are you far off? Why have you forgotten me, rejected me? Why didn't you come in time? But in each of these also, faith, you are God, my stronghold. I'm angry with you, but I am still acknowledging you as my Lord. I am angry you didn't come because I have faith that you could have done something about this because you're the son of God. It's those coexisting. And we look in this moment, Jesus looks at Mary sitting at his feet, weeping, living in the tension of that anger and faith together. He scans the friend group that has gathered, and they're weeping. She's weeping. He scans the scene and sees his friend in the tension, and Jesus wept. Now, remember, Jesus said in the beginning of this passage, he knew the story wasn't going to end in death. He knew this would end in something that would bring glory to God and to God's son, verse 4. But all the same, he wept. We're going to put a pin in that. We're going to come back. Jesus goes on to the tomb where Lazarus has been laid. He tells them to move the stone. This is the portion that we read this morning. And at this point, have you guys seen the movie Inside Out? Okay, I can't make a good snare, snare, but you remember disgust? You remember like that face that she makes? There's a little bit of disgust, like, ew, he's going to be stinky. I don't, I don't know if that's a good idea. So there's another emotion to put in to the mix. Here's a little bit of disgust. He's been in there for days. And then picking up in verse 40, Jesus said to him, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, I, but I say this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Notice here, Jesus does not pray, Father, would you please do this? He basically is saying, Father, 
I'm so glad you hear me. I'm going to do this so that everybody knows that you sent me. The truth is, there are other resurrection miracles in Scripture. I'll use the example, when Elijah raises a little boy, the boy that, um, a widow, uh, is just devastated, and Elijah prays to God and says, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. All the other resurrection stories are people crying out, God, do this thing, and a miracle occurs, but not this time. This is an important difference, because everybody in that crowd has now heard. They know the story of Elijah. But they now have heard that this man, this Jesus of Nazareth, just said, thank you that you hear me. I'm going to do this thing. And does it with his own voice, the voice of the Son of God. And sure enough, Lazarus walks out, still covered in burial linens, like wrapped, you know, that, that. I really imagine this scene, you guys. This would be a really crazy moment if you were in that weeping crowd. And what do you think happens when he comes out covered in these burial clothes? I mean, hugs, tears, screams, shock, probably a little bit of fear, awe, all of these things. Probably also praise, hope, love, faith, joy. I think maybe some confusion on the part of Lazarus. Maybe just a bit. I woke up recently from a surgery where I'd been put out for a few hours. I was so fuzzy. I'm like, Wait, what happened? Where am I? Can you imagine being in the grave for four days and being, well, I mean, there's confusion here. We're reading this to feel all the emotions. He comes out. What was that? All the feels. You guys, such a breadth of human experiences in such a short span of time. So why did this moment hit me really tenderly these last few weeks as I thought about our gathering, as I was thinking through past locations and faces and all of that, as I was feeling my tension? Because the tear streaks are still on Jesus' face while he watches Lazarus stroll out of that grave. His cheeks are still wet when the celebration bursts out. If we were thinking just logically, from G- logic only, from Jesus in this moment, it might be, oh, they all know I'm the Son of God now. My buddy Lazarus is back. I love him. I even knew this was going to work this way, that God would get the glory. Everything is going to plan. This would be like a really good moment if we were thinking just logically but our lord is so much more than logic right his emotion welled from his heart and tears fell out of his eyes even knowing the happy ending that was about to come jesus wept a lot of ink has been spilled on pondering this tiny little verse shortest verse in the bible lots of thoughts about it i'll give you a couple of thoughts You pick your own, what you think it might be. Was it compassion? He was surrounded by so much grief, including from these sisters that he loved so much. Was it the compassion of Jesus that he was weeping because he felt the feels of the people around him? Was it the painful recognition that his own death was coming. This is almost a foreshadowing of the thing that would happen to him. And Jesus knows. He's very intentional in his path back to Jerusalem. He knows something's coming. Was it painful recognition of this foreshadowing? Was it frustration that they would still say he's the Messiah, but they still don't get it? Their faith imagination is still not close to big enough. Is he frustrated? People have different theories about what's happening. I tend to think that The tears came because even knowing the miracle was about to happen, Jesus is feeling in his very body and heart and soul and spirit, he's feeling the magnitude of the weight of death. 
death, the epitome of the brokenness that has come into the world, that has broken shalom since the garden, that hurts our bodies and breaks our hearts. All of the world's evil and sin and darkness hits its pinnacle in death. And Jesus is standing in this moment, standing in the tension between death and resurrection. And I think that in some ways, that's where we still stand today. So follow me for a second. Lazarus' resurrection, it was a temporary one. It was a miracle. It gave glory to God, absolutely. But it was temporary, right? Lazarus did go on to pass away. And so, um, but it's a foretaste. It's a foretaste of what we know is about to come of Jesus' resurrection, which, by the way, happened through the Spirit, an eternal and forever defeat over death. And so that ultimate victory is still to come, even in this moment of temporary resurrection. And so where does that shape where we are now? Well, we now live between Christ's ultimate victory in that moment, his full resurrection, and his future return when all will come into, everything will come into full resurrection glory. All of creation, all of humanity, all of this world, new heaven, new earth, even death will be swallowed up, and Christ himself will wipe away every tear from every eye. But Jesus' tears here in this moment call me. They call us to the many resurrection moments that we, as Christ followers, are invited to witness and experience and participate in all of the time while we still live in this tension of the here and not yet. I'm thinking about the tensions this morning specific to us as a larger body of Missio Dei Chicago, right? I think specifically as I was just sitting in this story and thinking many resurrections, I was thinking, man, we're living in the tension of gathering here today and celebrating that the latest church plant of Missio Dei in Albany Park has taken root so beautifully, serving in that neighborhood. Something new is sprouting and as a presence in a new space where it was not before, where we were not before. That's so cool. And I feel the loss of honoring and yet grieving the closing of Missio de Humble Park, a gathering that will gather no more from that group of people in that neighborhood. These are parts of the real tension in our collective shared story. And I feel them at an all-family gathering. I feel them a lot. And I also think about just how we've gathered here. We've prayed with lament. You guys, that list from the prayers of the people was so long, so heavy, so much weight in our world. We cry out, Lord, have mercy. And we proclaim and sing the goodness of God, and I'm up here preaching a resurrected king. We're doing both of these things together. We stand in tensions in so many ways, and what I want to remind us about today is that as we do, we not only witness many resurrections, but we participate in them, in God's renewal moments, little mini resurrections all around us. When we step out and join together to serve the vulnerable in Christ's name, when we advocate for the oppressed because they bear God's image, when we celebrate the chains of sin being broken, a little mini resurrection victory over addiction or, or um, pornography use or anger in our hearts towards our brother or sister, every one of those many moments are many resurrection moments. And we, we celebrate those, finding freedom in Christ. We sing praise for the goodness of God, and we proclaim the good news of Jesus in dark and hurting places. 
Those are many resurrection moments, and we see them all around us. An artist and theologian named Makoto Fujimura in his book, Art and Faith, has a chapter that he calls Lazarus culture. I love that phrase, to live a Lazarus culture. But he says this, Christians can dare to rush into the storms and plagues of life because we have already seen the resurrection. And our intuition to anoint the king has been commended by the king himself. Christians, therefore, should move with unbridled compassion gratuitous empathy, that means like over-the-top heart for others, and abiding care to collaborate with each other to move into the world, even to the extent of loving our enemies. Christians should move with unbridled compassion, gratuitous empathy, and abiding care to collaborate with each other. That's what I celebrate as we worship here this morning. We are people of the resurrection, and we have faith in what Christ has done and what he still will do. What a joy it is to collaborate with other people of the resurrection, to collaborate for our city and for our world and for one another. We are people of many resurrection moments. We stand expectant. The expectancy of many resurrection moments while we wait, man, that's what anchors us when the waves feel super big of the ups and downs. Our anchor doesn't fail because we are people of resurrection faith. The anchor is unshakable. And so what I wanted to just say to us and remind us all of as we gather this morning, before we sing some more and eat a lot, before we do that, I want to remind us, you guys, even when the news feels heavy, when our friendship updates are like sitting in a storm of emotional uh, volatility, even in all of that, our heart posture in the in-between time where we stand, our heart posture matters and our presence matters, just like the presence mattered to Mary and Martha of their friends. Our presence in the in-between matters. Even when our cheeks are wet with streams of tears, we can watch expectantly for where Christ will show up and where Christ is at work and where Christ is calling his bride, that's us, to participate in many resurrection moments. How cool is that invitation? That's how God works in the world today is through the people responding to the Holy Spirit in us in response to what Christ has taught us to do. That's how this whole thing works. And it's a beautiful invitation that we get to go into spaces with expectancy, with joy, with faith, with tear streaks on our faces, all of it in this messy, holy, broken thing we call being the Church of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.